Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome, you're listening to The Race Guard on Sin 90.7 FM and I'm Ahmed Yusuf, your host for this afternoon's show. And um, Before we begin, we'll be doing acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet and pay respects to their elders both past and present. This land was never ceded in the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs and public culture with a little bit of a twist, as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues in Australia for the week. Today we have a special interview with Nasha Baffam, and uh, we'll be tackling and talking about the racist cartoon in Harold Sun, Q&A's review, and a featured discussion on Zwarte Pete, or he's better known in the English-speaking countries as Black Pete. Don't forget, you can get involved in all the discussions by texting in on zero. Four two seven seven six seven seven six seven, or tweet us using the hashtag and no, the handle at the race guard. And uh, today I'm joined with Amina and Zach. And Zach is our latest recruit. Hello, Zach. Hi. <laughs> Try to speak right into the oh, mic. You know, sorry. Oh, this so is your initiation. This. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, you can tell I'm not very good at this. Oh, but, but hi, everyone. Give our listeners a bit of a, I guess. An intro into who is Zach? Who am I? See, that's something I'm trying to figure out myself, as pretentious as that sounds. But um, uh, I'm a IR student. Uh, I've just finished my um, Bachelor of Arts degree, and I'm coming to the point in my life where I'm just like, oh no, what do I do now? Um, I'm trying to get into journalism and international relations and all that kind of stuff. I do a lot of photography and arty-farty type stuff outside of class. Um, I think that's about it. I don't really know what else to oh. to tell you about myself. I feel like you're being very humble, but... Uh, thank you, thank yeah. you. I try. And uh, <laughs> our special guest for this afternoon's show is Nasha Baffan. Thanks for coming on the show. No worries. Thanks for having me. How are you all? Good, good. good. Pleasure okay. having you on the show. Uh, sorry? I said we're good. We're good. <laughs> oh, well, Zach, you know, lucky we're having Nasha on the show today. You're studying at Monash. She's a journalism... Uh, academic hey, at hey. Monash. Connections. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I guess let's start with the, the interview. We're talking about journalism. You've been working in journalism for some time. And you've also, uh, we've had conversations off air about you saying journalism is a very monocultural, very white uh, industry. How have you, I guess, navigated being obviously not white um, in a very white industry? Uh, just a bit of a qualification there, uh, Ahmed. I have worked in public, or I worked in public broadcasting, and that's a completely different kettle of fish, I think, to to commercial broadcasting. So, um, in terms of um, you know the differences there, obviously with uh, 
you know, the type of people that you see uh, who are hired in, in a commercial context might be completely different. That's not to say we shouldn't try to get journalists of uh, culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds into commercial newsrooms. And that's very, very slowly changing. But the places that I worked at were, first of all, SBS, which has a mandate for multiculturalism. So its newsroom is was incredibly diverse. I hear now that they're cutting back a little bit on that diversity um, as SBS takes more of a commercial feel to it. And the ABC, where um, cultural diversity was incredibly encouraged. So those those are two qualifications. Having said that, however, it is a field where predominantly everyone around you does tend to be of uh, incredibly, as you say, monocultural, you know, and it invariably if, I mean, I was in radio and a lot of the stuff that we did would be around uh, telephone interviews. We'd rarely go out. But if you did, if you went to a TV or a um a print media sort of press conference, everyone around you, you would stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, I especially did with my headscarf, you know. It's just not an industry that, you know, good Muslim girls are expected to go into or, or you know, or expected to consider. So that was a bit hard, but, you know, what can you do? It was a, a job, a particular industry, which I'm, I'm really glad to hear that young people are interested in and want to, because it's such an important industry and it, it deals in products, but those products are super important. It's how the, the way people perceive things. Um, so it's absolutely crucial, I think, to not just educate journalists and, and the, journal, the media industry about issues of cultural diversity, which, by the way, journalism education, do, education does quite badly at this stage. Um, but it's also important to get um, journalists of colour into newsrooms. Why do you think we're not seeing um, enough journalists of colour and that sort of diversity in in newsrooms, both commercial and now, as you said, SBS scales back in, in public broadcasting? You have to go back to how these places hire. So if you look at a commercial news organisation like Channel 9 or Channel 7, they hire from their regional output. So they hire from WIN, they hire from Prime, they hire from their regional sort of branches. Uh, it's really, really rare that you'll see somebody get hired straight into a metropolitan newsroom who hasn't done some sort of uh, apprenticeship or some sort of you know flying hours in a country newsroom. That holds true for TV, for print, for radio. So an organisation like Channel 9 would first look to its regional outposts and it would see, okay, uh, at my regional station, are there any people who have been doing casual shifts who could be pulled up to the to the metros? Is there anyone within our current bank of staff who could be uh, called on to fill this position? So how do those regional places hire? They hire from journalism courses. Okay, so they hire from, from people studying journalism at uni. And if you have a look at the people studying journalism from uni, that is a predominantly monocultural space. So we're not talking medicine, we're not talking accounting, where um, it's incredibly diverse in terms of the student body. We're talking about courses uh, like the one here at RMIT's you know, School of Media, where you're talking about an enter score, an ATAR, which is in some years it was higher than medicine. It was just ridiculous. You know, people were, you know, clamouring to get in. And who gets those sorts of ATAR scores? There's a certain demographic that gets that, that type of ATAR score. So 80% of the course would come in through high school and through VCE. And that 80% would have these really high ATAR scores and they'd predominantly be uh, ex-private school students. And so um, there was uh, the good thing that RMIT did, which a lot of the universities do, is to set aside 20% for equity places. And so that would cover things like uh, asylum seeker or refugee groups, uh, indigenous people from rural backgrounds, um, low socioeconomic backgrounds, um, anyone who could demonstrate some sort of hardship 
um, would be considered under that 20%. But what that means is that the pool of people who uh, media outlets can recruit from is very narrow. Right. And so on, on the one hand, it's, uh, you know, it's not an issue of newsrooms not being able to recruit journalists of colour. colour. On, the, on the other hand, it's an issue of uh, the people who sort of come forward to consider this type of occupation um, generally don't come from certain cultural backgrounds. And in some of those cases, it's, it's understandable, like for people with uh, heavily, you know, who are heavily involved in uh, the Muslim community will often see the media as attacking them. Okay, and so from their perspective, it's like, why on earth would I want to study that field? You know, why on earth would I want to go into an industry that seems to portray me as, as an enemy of society? So, um, and then conversely, it's just, um, yeah, I guess it's just a matter of who, who is available for those news organisations to, to hire. And often, oftentimes, the, the people who graduate with journalism degrees don't really represent um, the sort of cultural diversity you might see in the lived experiences of people in, in Melbourne or Sydney. Um, just following from that, so for the people of color or the young people of color who are interested in getting involved with the media, who are probably, you know, part of the 20% or whatever who are studying journalism right now or who are taking part in, you know, things like what we're doing, um, what would your advice be to those 20%? Okay, so they are starting off from an, on a non-level playing field. So it'll be quite difficult because in many cases they'll be studying with uh, people who have come from uh, very, very established uh, middle Australia type families. They've got connections, you know, they've got, um, they've got established sort of networks. So I'd say just be aware that it is going to be difficult and throw yourself into it and really develop your nose for news. So do stuff like this, this show that you're doing on SIN. Go out and look for stories and present them and don't do stories that are related to your particular ethnicity. You've got to show a potential employer that you can be a good uh, storyteller, no matter what the story is. So it's a fantastic, um, I guess, uh, places like uh, seeing places like the race card that you're doing now are a really good opportunity to show a potential employer that you can unpack a story which may not have anything to do with your own community. Um, you might be doing a story that is about, say, for instance, the Indigenous community and you might not have an Indigenous background. Right. You, know, you don't, might not have any links to the Indigenous um, uh, culture here, but you're able to tell that story, even though it's a story from a culture that's not your own, uh, because you recognise a good story. And so if you're able to, to recognise a good story and then be able to convey it and to present it and to put together the content that tells that story well, then you're, you're halfway there. Um, because it's not just the degree that will obviously get you your foot in the door in a, in a job in this industry. It's what you can show your, your potential employer, what you can do, right? It's what you can show in terms of this is who I've interviewed. These are the stories that I've done. This is the area that I'm interested in. Um, so I would use vehicles like, like this to indicate to a potential employer um, your interviewing skills, your sense of newsworthiness, um, your ability to, to write for broadcast or for, for a medium that's appropriate, and just basically do everything but the stories that are about your community. You, you obviously also teach journalism and have been doing it for some time. How are we teaching um, the journalists of tomorrow? Are we teaching them the kind of journalism and, and with the ethics and, and what have you that we should be? That's a really good question, and I'm, I'm glad you took the, the interview there. Um, at this stage, 
each of these journalism degrees is usually overseen by a body of people from industry. So you'll have people from The Age, The Herald Sun, uh, the ABC, Channel 9, Channel 7, all of them form this sort of advisory committee. It happens at La Trobe, uh, where I know Ahmed is, is studying. It happens at Monash, where I currently work. It happened here at RMIT, where I used to work. Um, so every journalism degree has this sort of industry body, and they sort of tell the lecturers and the people who run the course, this is what we want. Okay, this is what We want your students to be doing this. We want your students... And that's coming from an industry perspective. Um, unfortunately, they're looking towards uh, they're looking to journalism degrees as a way for them to cut back on training because, as you know, a lot of journalism mainstream media outlets are cutting back on money, um, and so they're looking at universities to do the stuff that really they should be doing when they hire people. Um, so there's not a lot of focus there on um, on things like cultural diversity. There's not a lot of um, you know there's not a lot of space, I guess, in in the program because you're trying to cater to this industry body who says your advisory body says we need kids who are much better at interviewing. We need kids who are really good at technology. They need to be able to know how to upload a podcast. They need to be able to, you know, be able to update a website. They need to be able to build a social media following, etc. And and so we go, we turn around, we design our courses and say, okay, well, that'll fulfill that, that'll fulfill that. What these people never say is we need journalists who are able to unpack stories about terrorism and to be able to tell these stories with the depth that that requires. They don't care about that. Okay, why would they? It wouldn't give them clicks, right? It's not their business model. Um, and so understandably, they're saying we need students who, who are able to work fast, right? who can get these interviews, who can put, put all of this together. But, I mean, have you ever seen a radio story as a script? Of course you have. You know, you, you've, uh, you know, doing, you're doing a lot of stuff at scene. And so you would see a radio story. Sometimes stories are like 30 words long. How on earth are you supposed to convey, like, all of those issues in a, in a story that's 30 words long and is meant to be read out in half a minute, you know? Um, so unfortunately, it is part of the part of it is the format. Um, there's certainly scope. I mean, a lot of these programs are actual degrees, so they're not they're not TAFE courses. So they they do have space um, in the theory part of things, and they tend to concentrate on the traditional concept of a liberal arts degree. So in addition to your journalism subjects, you're going to be studying, for example, your typical journalism degree will have politics, um, you know, uh, history or, or international studies, those types of majors to round out the degree. If it only had journalism degrees, sorry, if it only had journalism subjects, it would be a diploma. Right. So in order for it to be a university degree, you have to do those theoretical subjects. And some of them are quite good. Some of them are things like journalism and society, you know, looking at the theoretical underpinnings of, of how journalism works in, in a democracy. Um, I would really, really like to see things like international relations or the history of Islam and, and the Middle East, you know, or the history of um, Islam and the West, for instance. I would like to see that as an area or as a subject that people could take because the idea theoretically is that you take those subjects and you study them and then you combine them with your journalism, right? And so you have, you're more informed when you do a piece on, say, um, I don't know, you're doing a story on Cambodia and, and the genocide trials, right? And so you, you, the idea is that you would have learnt about that in your Asian history class, that sort of thing. Now, wouldn't it be great if you could do that with, um, particularly now with um, these types of stories dominating the agenda, wouldn't it be great to produce a generation of graduates who are able to have all of the technical competencies to be able to produce this, right, as a, in a technical format, uh, in video for the web, in, in, you know, they've got good writing skills, etc. Can you imagine if these journalists also had the knowledge about um, the Middle East that you would expect somebody who's reporting on that area to have? Um, we laugh 
laugh at the people who are interviewed who give stupid responses. You know, we, we all shared that video of Reza Aslan ripping apart the CNN anchors when they tried to talk about, you know, Islam. But the truth is a lot of the journalists are the, I think are the ones who need to be called out on their ignorance about these issues because they're not asking the right questions. And part of it's not their fault because they were not trained to do so and they weren't trained to have the, the sort of knowledge that it would take to, to ask uh, the right questions. You, you talk about some of the things that are happening now in terms of how people are reporting. Do you, do you feel there's a growing conservative, conservatism going on in the media in terms of trying to, I guess, like we see with things like Tony Abbott's past um, um, term in, in, in office and things like that, um, people using rhetoric and, and mixing up with journalism to try to monetize journalism, an industry that is struggling? It is unfortunately, we're entering an era where the click means everything. And so particularly with commercial news organisations, uh, advertising revenue is dependent on the number of people who click on a story, who they can say this is part of our audience, who they can then monetize and sell uh, that figure to potential advertisers. What this means is that a story that may not necessarily be a story might be pushed to the front of the page just because it is share worthy and people will post about it and link to it. I'll give you an example. A former student several years ago um, came to see me and she was quite upset. She was a local newspaper reporter and she was feeling a little bit upset about a story that she had to do, which she felt wasn't a story. So she worked somewhere, I think it may have been even been Dandenong. So she was out in Dandenong um, at the local community paper there and her her editor asked her to do a story on a swimming pool that was after hours hired by the city of Dandenong for women, right, for women only. And there was no story here, to be honest. You know, and this is what she said to me over coffee. She said, I, I felt that it was a beat up, but she couldn't say no because she was a young reporter and her very senior editor, she was worried about her own career. So she went out and did that story, even though she felt that it wasn't a story. You could probably guess why the editor asked her to do that story. It would get people angry. It would get people clicking on it and saying, look at how these Muslims are, you know, are taking over this, this public swimming pool, even though the city of Dandenong had said that the pool would be allowed for all women after hours, it was just like a private booking. You know, it was there was absolutely no story there. But um, the student felt that she had to confine to the way that her employer wanted clicks to come in. So even when you do have a student, well, a former student or, or a graduate who thinks about these things, sometimes the format is the industry just. I guess, grinds that uh, sense of ethics to the ground because the bottom line is she's got to keep her job and she's got to get those clicks coming in. Have you ever had to deal with that in your experience in journalism? Um, oh, look, every journalist will tell you stories where they fought with their editor. Um, not specifically with um, my particular religious background, which is Muslim, um, but often we would fight about things like I remember one of my colleagues who's now with the BBC, she would ring up the wire services and say, why are you talking about this particular epidemic in Queensland? I want to know what's happening with these kids who have died in a bomb explosion in Pakistan. You know, journalists often don't question that. They don't often question that set of priorities. They're beginning to now, which is good, right? which is a really, really good thing. When we saw what happened in Paris, yes, that was awful, absolute atrocity. But people are actually questioning 
Um, and you you got people, you got journalists being really defensive about the fact that they weren't paying as much attention to that. I know some people who were doing that quite a long time ago, and you know, for several years they'd actually get angry and, and ring up. And I've often had. I remember having a screaming match with with my editor over the phone one day when she asked me to continue to put the um, the London Olympics opening ceremony at the top of the bulletin. And I said, there's other things happening. You know, there's a Syria's exploding. There's this, there's that. Um, and so you, you just, um, I don't know, these are just things that every journalist, I guess, has to deal with. And I know that that former student that I told you about, as she gets older, as she gets promoted, etc., she'll feel a little bit more comfortable about that. So she'll she'll feel a little bit more comfortable about questioning her, her editor and um, she'll get to the stage where she herself is presenting her own stories and pitching her own stories. Um, and she'll get, to, you know, it, it's not a very nice experience to have to to understand that you're being hired to do this. And, you know, from a sense of ethics, she didn't feel that that was a, a story. And, you know, that was somebody from a completely, completely super bland beige background. You know, she came from a private school. She very, very middle Australia. And even she could recognize it. She was like, this isn't a story, you know, I'm using Muslims to get clicks. And she, she sort of understood that. Every journalist has those stories, you know, has, has their stories where they fight with um, their editor over what needs to go first on the on the web page, what needs to go first in the bulletin, you know. Um, and there's, I guess, differing perceptions now about that. Uh, if, if you could call it a silver lining, one of the good things that came out of the, the Paris and the Beirut bombings was that recognition that, um, yeah, there is this hierarchy of victimhood. Of course there is. And I was guilty of that myself. I'd feel terrible if one of our correspondents rang up and said, I've got a great f story for you from the Philippines. There's been this car bomb, you know, and several people were killed. And I've been guilty of that. The first thing I would say was, do you know if there were any Australians? You know, and you just, you do that without thinking. And then afterwards you sit down and you go, well, doesn't make it less of a story because there were no Australians, you know? Um, yeah, everyone has had to, has had to deal with that. Any more questions? Do you ever feel like there's a... Okay, so I, I'm trying to get into journalism and all of this sort of, of this field, and I always think, you know, if I do, I kind of... You know, there's this stereotype that you have to sell your soul, in a sense. Um, have you ever felt pressure to not just conform, but to... I really don't know how to word this, but really just to fit into the, to the working society, fit into that white Australian culture, anything like that? Um... Zach, I, I don't have any words except encouragement. I, I really, just to recognise that it's going to be an incredibly difficult environment to, to break into, but every time somebody from a culturally or linguistically diverse background says to me, I'm interested in journalism, I want you to keep that interest as long as possible. Because if you get in and, you know, um, you're doing all the right things, you know, getting getting a bank of experience up, um, getting together a portfolio of things that you can do. Um, if you do get in, that is going to weigh on your mind because uh, your first week, you know, in, inside a newsroom, your colleagues will pat you on the back and say, okay, great, now let's go out and get totally plastered. You know, let's go out and get completely drunk. Um, you will, you'll notice people afraid to say things around you. You know, they'll, they'll say certain things about Africans when, when they think that you're not there. You know, that's going to happen. But the best thing about it is just to be forewarned because to be forewarned is to be forearmed, you know. Yeah. So you absolutely know um, that that's the sort of environment that you're going to get into. And I would, I, I do it all the time. I just simply say, sorry, guys, got to go home, you know. Um, and it's sort of, 
so you lose sort of uh, some aspects of a uh, social life, you know. It doesn't matter. You've got your community. You know, you've got your things that you do. You've got your, presumably you play sport or whatever. You know, you've got stuff to do outside of, outside of the job. Um, I think the key thing is to just understand that that's what's going to happen if I try to get into this industry. And if you know about it, then you can put things, you know, you, you can sort of, sort of prepare for it. Um, and to recognise that, you know, if, if you're not going to go out and get plastered on a, on a Friday night, because that's what they all do now, um, and journalists drink like fish, and they swear every second word is F, you know, in, in a newsroom. And they can be incredibly, you know, just, I guess, the best thing to do is to just research it and talk to people who are already working as journalists. Talk to people who are journalists of colour in predominantly... Um, in, in commercial newsrooms, they're out there. You know, you can ask us. You can ask Ahmed for contacts. You, know, you can ask. Um, you can ask me. You can. You know, you can find out who they are and talk to them and say, "How did you deal with it?" You know, um, I think just recognizing that is a huge step. Okay, so recognizing that is a huge step, and then just preparing for it. And on that note of uh, community, and you know, having this sort of a group of other ethnic journalists who kind of have your back in a sense. You know, with this changing times and changing world of, of journalism do you think it's really necessary for us to try and like seek out this like positions in these white dominant spaces or just to you know bugger off and make our own things or no I, I actually that's a really really good question and when I was here at, at RMIT I could count on one hand the number of people who I knew were from my community and who were studying journalism and I put them all in touch with each other and they had this really informal sort of network so they had this informal network where they'd share amongst each other, you know, job opportunities, publication outlets, that sort of thing, because they all understood that it was going to be an uphill battle for them. Um, it would be great if we had something really formal like um, the Muslim Legal Network. You know, I would love to put together journalists of colour into one room and basically say, here are your mentors, you know, learn from them. This is what they've done. Uh, it's just unfortunately something that requires time. And I think that something like that might come from young people, you know, might come from a journalist. Uh, who, you know, there's there's definitely an opportunity there if somebody like Ahmed or somebody like you or somebody like Amina could, you know, you know, get together, reach out to these people because I'm absolutely sure they will have the time for it. You know, they'll they'll absolutely if you ring them up and say, look, I'm trying to get into journalism. I think you're starting this thing where you could be a mentor to people. Ninety nine percent of the time they're going to say yes, and then if you say to them, it's we're only going to meet three times a year, you know. But th during those three times, if you could maybe organise a talk for them to speak to young people who are consider considering getting into the industry, um, that sort of thing is, is a huge opportunity, I think, that can actually be formalised and that you can probably do with your universities, um, with your university's help and support. Thanks, Nasha, for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. What's going on, people? This is Akala, and right now you're listening to The Race Card. Big up. Yes, you're listening to The Race Card on Sin 90.7 FM and we're back and we're going into our Week That Was segment. Um, appreciate uh, Nash's time for coming on the show. Um, and yeah, and uh, the, the first first story of the day goes to Zach. Hey. <laughs> um, so, folks, uh, this is my first story and I'm very excited about it, but it's, it's quite the doozy. Um, so... Once again, an old white man has taken Australia by storm by doing something blatantly racist and then telling everyone it's not. Uh, so if you're a reader of the Australian or just generally active on social media, you'd have heard or seen the recent cartoon published by Bill Leake. In the cartoon, old mate Bill has essentially depicted 
Indians as a backwards people with no understanding of modern technology. They're shown crouched over some solar panels delivered by the UN, smashing them to pieces and attempting to eat them. Now, Bill has gone and written an article, t- an article titled uh, Racist? I'll tell you what's racist, which honestly I think was just the funniest thing that I'd seen in quite some time. I mean, I think it was uh, Mark Fennell who posted a photo on Twitter saying something like, um, oh, please, old white man, tell me more about your in-depth experiences with racism. Um, now, after the total crap storm that ensued with pretty much everyone calling this piece, this piece racist and offensive... The Australian has gone on to defend Bill and the piece itself, and they've said, uh, We stand by this cartoon and believe it is a strong example of Bill Leake and the Australian's exercise of its commitment to freedom of speech. So basically what that translates to is, Screw you guys, we can say whatever we want. Um, And they've gone on to say something like, um, I think it was, where's the quote? The target of the cartoon was not Indians. Our readers would have, and in fact have, understood this. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now, I don't know if this is a reflection of the readers of The Australian, but it's pretty clear that neither Bill or The Australian have any regard or concerns for the feelings of their non-white readers, which I dare say is quite minimal regardless anyway. But um, I'm going to throw this out to you guys um, and to the listeners as well. Do you think this practice of being offensive and shouting freedom of speech afterwards is a growing trend because I suppose previously, you know, you could get away with just being blatantly racist and not really having to defend yourself. But now there are more people defending their racism under the banner of, you know, free speech with reference to Charlie Hebdo and other such publications. So what are your thoughts, guys? What do you ooh, think? Ooh, Freedom Pretty of heavy. I know. I know. I go all in on my first day. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know what's interesting? Um, Harold Sun have this uh, cartoonist, Mark Knight. I'm not sure if you've seen his stuff. He does some really, really horrible uh, drawings that have been racist, transphobic, and all this kinds of stuff. And you know, and, and he just continues to be published by them. And again, they they put on this banner of freedom of speech. And uh, Andrew Bolt's done that as well when he told a few Indigenous people, "Oh well, you know, you're not really Indigenous." And apparently, that was freedom of speech, even though that was def- uh, defamatory. So, so things like that. You know, it just it's the same old argument. I have the right to to be a bigot, as a, a good friend George Brandis said once. Bless him. <laughs> and I think the other thing people need to keep in mind was is the use of freedom of speech being a selective kind of protocol. It's not something that is um, evenly distributed or something that is applied, you know, across all boards. If I were to say Allah Akbar in public, I can't defend myself saying that's freedom of speech. I would probably... You'd get knocked down. Yeah. You'd be struck down, <laughs> would, pushed to the ground. Yeah. You know? I, before I can even say freedom of speech, I think something would have happened to me by then. So I think people need to keep in mind that freedom of see- speech is, is an important um, aspect, but it's being, you know, kind of like used as a, as a justification for bigotry and to allow for the dominance and the oppression of marginalized people 
without questioning, without, you know, you know, just following blindly. So is this like a, a sort of trend that you think is just going to continue or is it dying down or what do you guys think? Well, I, just to, to butt in there. Or just I, like a new form of racism. <laughs> <laughs> I read this article by Africa's a Country. That's a website, Africa's a Country, I think, .com. It's a really, really good website. There's a Twitter, Africa's a Country. Um, try to follow them, find them on, on Twitter. Really cool bunch of uh, people. Uh, and there was this article about, it was, it was back in April, I think it was posted, but I read it last night. And this guy, I think he is from South Africa, um, and he was talking about um, how in South Africa, everyone is in this falsity about thinking that they're not racist um and a lot of white south africans will will really have this denial kind of factor and he said like he's never seen anything like that until he came to australia uh and there was this really great line i'm gonna try to find it it was uh, i tweeted it so i'm gonna grab my phone out and and find this line this is me stumbling and it was like amazing line um and i feel like this kind of and it, it kind of like antipathies Australia's rela- like relations to to race, and and how, I guess how it's, it's pretty uh, damning, if you will. And the line is, it is as though on some psychotic level, white Australians are angry with Aboriginal people for still being here. And that was just mm. a, a line in in a very very good piece, and it kind of talked about how. I read that this morning. Yeah, you actually. read this this morning? Yeah, How yeah. good was the piece? It was really good. You guys should all read it. Yeah. So it was this. It, it just harks onto this kind of like denial factor when it comes to um, water shines and and racism and this limiting like this this. It's not here. It's not here. It's not here. And just hoping it goes away without doing or having a discussion at all. And you have people like um, what's the guy from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I oh, forgot his name. Eddie Maguire. Yeah, Eddie Maguire. He can, oh, call, his, he can call his Muslim friends Muzzies. Yeah. <laughs> and you have people like him just saying, oh, you know, um, Adam Goods, he's just, he's playing the race card all oh, too much. Oh, no, no, no. And it's like, dude, you're a middle-aged white man. Stop talking about this. You have no place but to listen right now. And I think by saying, even just saying the race card, people are able to remove themselves from responsibility and it's almost as if there's no, as as already mentioned it doesn't exist you're just making like a mountain out of a molehill but coming back to the idea of freedom of speech i think people use that as a means to defend themselves obviously but when you try to critique their use of freedom of speech um their use of the use of freedom of speech if that makes sense yeah yeah um it's almost as if you are attacking democracy and you're attacking like a western ideal and so it's another another cloak for white supremacy, technically. I mean, even though the idea of democracy shouldn't have to be um, in symbiosis with white supremacy, it's the way how it's coded. So when you attack a principle of, of, a, you know, of a governance predicated on that, it's almost as if you are trying to open a whole can of worms, which is a, it's a completely different battle, if you ask me. That's uh, but anyway, a whenever, bigger one. Whenever someone talks about democracy, they're really talking about this very kind of like white Western idea of democracy. The white standard yeah, of the democracy. White, yeah, the yeah. white standard of democracy. And we have to take this to... We've got to take it to Africa. We've got to take it to Asia. We've got to take it to the Middle East. We've got to take it everywhere. We've got to teach these black and brown people that don't know how to do with their own affairs we need to teach them the, the the laws of the land and you see that with interventions into iraq afghanistan and 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 etc and how it continues to this day in this form of neocolonialism put more beauty
beautiful people of colour on TV and connect viewers in ways which transcend race and unite us. That's the real Team Australia. You know, you look at the American TV, British TV, it, you know, has, uh, you know, it's got shows with d different nationalities. And, 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 and not just putting nationalities just for the point of difference, but creating work that caters for um, actors of different backgrounds. In my mind, I see a line. And over that line, I see green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white women with their arms stretched out to me over that line. But I can't seem to get there no how. I can't seem to get over that line. That was Harriet Tubman in the 1800s. And let me tell you something. The only thing that separates women of color from anyone else is opportunity. You cannot win an Emmy for roles that are simply not there. You're listening to The Race Garden in 90.7 FM. And that was Amora Tribe's Bahia da Sol. And uh, we're going into our second story of the week that was. And there was a, there was a report this week on, on Kwanda Q&A show. Actually, I should just say Q&A, not Kwanda. Yeah, but I always get confused when people say Kwanda. I'm like, what is that? It sounds, yeah. it sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, I'm going to say Q&A. Um, and, and finding is that the report, there was an issue with the gender balance in terms of, uh, of the lack of women on, on panels. And uh, the, the findings of the report said women are significantly outnumbered by men, asked fewer questions and were given less time to speak according to the final report on ABC's Q&A. Um, and the report recommended that host Tony Jones should ensure women are equally involved and that ABC amend its editorial policies to include a specific requirement that women are properly, properly represented in discussions across all its factual programs. However, people were a bit angry by Q&A's uh, Q review, only looking at one branch of diversity opposed to examining the lack of representation the lack of representation of indigenous people and other minority groups and i guess what what are what are our thoughts on that you can tell that this this review was done by a white person really <laughs> like i mean whenever people are you know studying the the equality of of a certain setting if you find that the findings show that you know it's only there's there's a lack of equality between men and women and that's it then it's usually just like you know you can tell okay so y'all are some white feminists up in here okay i can i can see that yeah. but um yeah it's you can also tell that th there are clearly not enough you know indigenous or other ethnic people actually working for the abc or working for the people that did this review because if there were you know surely at least one person there they would have spoken out and been like hey you should probably look into like women of color instead of just, you know, white women or women in general, you know? Mm, I, I saw a discussion on Twitter by um, Luke Luke Pearson, who we got on the show a few, like now a few months ago. Um, and he's the uh, the founder, he's the founder of Indigenous X. And he was saying, oh, well, you know, they only let one, uh, one Indigenous person per month. And maybe if it's too much, every two months, you know, and, and joking in that sense. And I guess, I mean, what are your thoughts? I think for me, this harks back similarly to the gender pay gap. 
And, you know, when people talk about, I, I, this will be relevant, but for example, when we talk about 80 cents, uh, what women make to every dollar a man makes, we're also talking about what a white woman makes to a white man. And we do not see the intricacies or the, you know, the fine lines, the details. Uh, for example, indigenous women, what do they make? What do migrant women make? Uh, migrant women of color, particularly. Um, when we don't see these things, we allow a lot of people to fall through the cracks and it doesn't really help anybody except for white people. And it's almost as if the only way we can solve equity or inequity in this instance is through looking at it through a white lens. And when we look through a white lens, you know, it's the same thing. We can see it um, in terms of gay rights and I should largely say LGBT really plus. We, t- we look through it um, through a white lens again. We, we talk about, you know, gender Oppression, we're looking through a white lens again. We're not really looking at all the different uh, intersections. And that becomes problematic because then what you're getting is a superficial kind of like bandage to what is a structural problem. And um, I guess, Zach, do you think that that's a thing that happens in a lot of senses that we have quick fixes opposed to having um, large scale change? Large scale change is is scary for for white people, I, I feel. Like, because that, in a sense, is confronting to them. Like, it mm. by trying to, you know, change, like, large, like, on, the, on a larger scale, you're pretty much saying, hey, you guys are being really, you know, prejudiced or really... You're, you're pretty much showing them what they're trying to deny, showing them the racism that they're trying to hide. And so, quick fixes like this, you know, this review by saying, oh, hey, men and women are, men, men and women are equal now. That's great. That, I mean, that's fine, but, like... You're not really fixing anything, but you're you're kind of just satiating them. You're kind of just like uh, patting them on the back and saying, "Good job, you did a good thing." You know, but it doesn't really change the underlying problems that are that are present. And I think even more so. Uh, sorry, coming back to this whole point of gender inequality, oppression. Bo- <laughs> um, so when you know, in the Western world, the Western white world talks about gender inequality. They like to look at it through things like this. They like to look at things things through statistics. You know, there's not enough women here. They're not making enough. Obviously, talk about white women. But then they don't talk about things like rape culture. They don't talk about things like domestic violence. That is a particularly people of color issue. And the way how they look at issues in terms of gender oppression already is reeking of white supremacy. It's already... You know what I mean? It, the way how they look at issues that is worth looking at and what is worth putting forward is already through this white lens. Because, of course, Australia, Australians don't want to talk about how actually one woman dies every week because of domestic violence. That is something maybe they would think of Afghanistan. You know what I mean? That's something they would think of in Pakistan. That's something they would think of, you know, elsewhere. They don't want to think about it's happening here. It's happening even within white people. But then, you know, let's not talk about white on white violence. It <laughs> doesn't exist. <laughs> Yeah. I'm Gary Foley, and you're listening to The Race Card. Yes, you're listening to The Race Card. We're going to go into our feature discussion. And, Amina, no, there is no such thing as white-on-white crime. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> you crazy person, get out of here. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, Zwarte Pete, anyone? Well, for the uninitiated or English speakers, Black Pete. Who is Black Pete? Every year around the festive period, St. Nicholas, or Santa Claus as he's known in these parts, is accompanied by a little boy, yay high, who's covered in blackface. Say, why is he relevant now? A few weeks ago, at a Dutch embassy in Canberra, three 
Three men in blackface handed out gifts to, to little children. How sweet and how quaint, isn't it? Uh, the deputy head of mission for the embassy, the Dutch embassy in Canberra, Arthur Den Hartog, I think that's how he pronounced his name, described it as a very pleasant occasion. He said, Zwarte Piet has no recent elements. And it's a very much a part of Dutch culture. So we thought, you know, we've got to find out about Zwarte Piet. And uh, we looked out. We we looked. We we looked on um, in Europe. We try to search high and high and no. Is it low and high or is it high and low? I think it's high, high and low. low. I think. I think I, it's high and low. Yeah, I don't high know and low anymore. I'm questioning everything. <laughs> now, yeah, I'm questioning everything myself. So we looked high and low, and we 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 found. So we rang up our friend Marie, who lives in Belgium, who's wor- who's grown up in Belgium, um, and he's very much um, aware of. Black Pete's role in in Belgian society. You don't really express it, yeah. And even if you ask, like this, uh, recently I was like at a dinner party, and somebody brought brought up the Zwarte Piet, you know, subject. And so it was like this neighbor, and all his friends were white. So me and my cousin were already like, okay, it's going to be interesting, whatever. And then they bring that subject up, and then one of the girls, uh, woman who was there, she's like, I don't know why everybody's making fuss out of this because. Basically, the only reason why he's painted black is because, you know, he goes into the chimney and then he comes out and he's, you know, he's dirty. But in my head, I was just like, but wait, how come he comes out with like all these gold earrings, has time to put like, you know, these really big and very grotesque uh, red lipstick, very bright. And it's just out here, you know, acting like a, like a, like a, like a monkey. You know what I mean? It's like. Yeah, that is a very light, how do you say, it's a very light explanation to what is going on. So people are always just being like, oh, come on, come give me a pat on the back and being like, oh, come on, you know. So it's it's this space where where when people tr- people try to make you feel like you're doing the most out of something very light. Yes, um, that was uh, Marie talking about Belgium. And you, you thought Belgium was pretty bad, didn't you? Uh, well, um, you know, Zwarte Piet is a national icon in in Holland, uh, Belgium's sister country. And Marie says it's a, it's almost in like it's illegal to to say otherwise. You have a horde, like like you know, hundreds sometimes of like Zwarte people walking around in the streets, and people even like I I actually certain act, um, artists who are also activists were arrested for wearing, wearing a t-shirt that says Zwarte Piet is, is a racist. You know, you get arrested for that because this is like almost like a national treasure. Yes, it's a national treasure over there in that country. So that's why for me, when I see like the intensity of the debate over there, I'm like, oh, damn, like, I remember that shit disturbed me, but it was never as present you know, as as it appears to be over there. And people are very, very defensive, if it, it appears, because even in the news, are very defensive towards that tradition and keeping it alive and being like, oh, but, you know, making, whitening uh, Zwarte Piet would make, would go against our tradition, and it's almost like erasing an important part of our identity, where you're just like, come on, guys, this character was created during, like, the colonial era, and, you know, by some really, like, not even coincidence, but, like, whatever you want to call it, 
he behaves like he's he's the slave basically of this white man who's super sweet and he's the one you know a punishing kid hitting them scaring them and then he became like this little clown you know like almost like uh you know in old movies when you see like those african-american actors being like very clownish he behaves and jumps around the same way that was so, so that was pretty interesting wasn't it the way they depict Zwate Pete and I remember a few months ago, this is what kind of like clicked in my mind. A few months ago I was watching Cecilia Meke's strolling series and she actually went to the Holland to to talk about I guess the the role of race and the the way black people, Afro black people in Holland deal with it. And I there was this Somali guy called Soleiman who was talking to her about Black Pete and right now I think it, it it's super relevant specifically in, in the current climate when, when talking about Black Pete? I think Black Pete has to do with, this country has a lot of history of anti-blackness. In the 1930s in Amsterdam, um, black people were barred from working in this uh, city. Did you know in this country they had human zoos to look at black people, especially Africans, to dehumanize them, to look at them, to feel superior? to throw like bananas at them, to study them. Uh, things like that are systematically ignored in this country, who, which are, I think, the roots of all anti-blackness in this country, because it has a history. Uh, the parents, the grandparents, their parents, it has roots, you know? So if we can talk about roots of like things like black, black beads, then we can, we can never change it. I have terrible history of black people growing up. I don't like that. It started to hit me, like, people looked at me and said weird things, like, oh, you don't need paints, stuff like that. Or, uh, oh, you look like black Pete. There's a story of my dad. One, one day he went, like, shopping in a, in a mall, and there was, like, little kids, like, follow, following him around, and then we kept on calling him black Pete, black Pete, this and that, for, like, five minutes in, 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 in a, like, a mall. And then, you know, eventually my dad came home and he said, like, you know what just happened? And then he told us, and I was like, whoa, what did people say, say about it? And he was like, nothing. People around him, like, there was, like, literally, like, perhaps 100 people in the entire mall. He said nothing. And uh, he said, like, that hurt more than a little kid screaming black beat at me for five minutes. My dad doesn't deserve that. No one does. Blackface is as normal as the Dutch language in this country. It's very essential to this country. Blackface is not seen as something racist. That was uh, Suleiman talking to Cecilia Meke at Strolling Series. And that was, I guess, a good kind of context to the whole Black Pete thing. And I guess we're, we're both of you aware of Zwarte uh, Piet and his significance in in Belgium and Holland and I think also France. I had no idea. I actually, um, I was in the Netherlands at the start of this year in January. Like I got there, I think like December 30th or something like that. Um, and I was there for ages. And I, I remember seeing like a lot of these like sort of blackface caricature dolls and stuff like that, like from like leftover Christmas shopping and things like that. Um, you know, decorated on like public Christmas trees and like in stores and things like that. And I, I used to think, what, what's that about? I don't know what this is because I wasn't familiar with Black Peter or anything. And I used to look at them and think, I don't understand this. I'm just gonna keep walking. But after hearing all of this, I'm just like, yo, 
That is a serious issue that I feel should be addressed by someone. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty intense. Have you heard of this before, Mina? Were you familiar with this? Or? Um, I've heard of it. I've never been to Europe, so I can't really speak to that particular experience. Having said that, I think the problem with this is the essentialism of everything, and the essential—not just the essentialism, but the essential dehumanization and the objectification, and how again bodies are used as entertainment. Um, I think that strikes. You know, and it's, and it's being entertained, and it's being enjoyed by like white people particularly, which again comes back to a particular history that is also pretty heinous. And if that is a history that a people are proud of, I think that's something that needs to be revisited. If I was from Holland or like whichever country that they practice such things, I would be severely embarrassed. You know, I think now is a good time to, uh, yeah, just revisit those roots, maybe. Yeah, no, but you know what surprised me the most is that you could, you could be arrested for for, for saying Zawate Pete is racist. Like you could be arrested in Holland, uh, like Marie said, and and how it's just this massive faux pas to do. You cannot say anything about him in um, Dutch society, and and that's just where's freedom of speech there? Uh, yeah. I know. <laughs> and then it goes back to your point about freedom of speech um, being selective. And goes back to even before that when uh, Nesha was saying about victimhood being selective and how we um, select our humanity in that sense. And it just, you know, I'm left scratching my head. I was talking to Marie the other night about it and we had this whole separate conversation and about how very much right wing Europe is at the moment when it comes to uh, specifically refugees and asylum seekers. And imagine coming to to Holland this time of the year and you're thinking, why are there people in blackface? And yeah, it's just, it's baffling. I think when we think about humanity, the other other way I would like to look at it is, would you ever see white people doing it? Like, would you ever see a white person being depicted so essentially? Would you ever see, you know what I mean? And And if white people can maybe question that, you know, will people actually, I don't know, I don't know, what would be the essential white person? Like, can't dance... And uh, I don't know, blonde hair, blue eyes. I mean, whatever. all the stereotypes just of a white person stereotypes. are not even it. that bad. Like, yeah, that's the thing. But just you don't imagine, use enough salt in your food. Oh, big exactly. Deal. Like, so imagine all of that, and they still get offended. They actually feel like they're victimized. So I feel like, okay, use that small speck of like hurt feelings and try to, you know, multiply, multiply that. You know, think of a ter- terrible history. Think of all those things, and then now you can maybe understand why that's problematic. It's not just you know a case of like a costume. It's beyond that. There's a whole, you know. I guess practice and praxis and <laughs> things, yeah. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, you know that draws our show to a close. Thank you for for coming on, um, Zach, for the first time, and thank you, Amina, for coming in as always. And appreciate Nasha your time. Um, obviously, she's listening at home right now, back to the podcast, as all of you should. Glued to the radio, I'm uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, you can you can find us on Acast. Download you can download the Acast app on. The Play Store or the iTunes or the iTunes Store by searching Acast, and you can find us there. You can find us on Mixcloud by searching us on Mixcloud. You can also down there their app as well. There's iTunes. There's for for Android users. You can find us on the Podcast Republic app, um, which is free. Uh, I know that much. I have it as well. Uh, and you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Twitter ha- at the Race Card and Facebook facebook.com forward slash race card show 
And you can find me on Twitter at Ahmed Yusuf10. Can they find you on Twitter? Yes, uh, at hashtag politics, but no A in tag, I think. It was a very tricky username to try and come up with, okay? It this took is, a while. This is very complicated. <laughs> well, hopefully, we can we can write this and add you in the tweet, maybe. I'll try to do that. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. I have like 12 followers. I'd like to get that up to 14. Hey, uh, Doran, I'll give you a shout out, you know, hashtag Thank follow, you so follow Friday, follow Friday. Yeah, sure. Is that a still a thing? I don't think I people do that now. Never heard of it, but we oh, can no, make it a thing. It's a massive thing. Oh, every okay. every Friday, people just go hashtag FFF, and they kind of oh. like give shout outs to people. But See, this I'm is so out of the loop with this modern hip technology. Oh God, you young people! Yeah. I'm like the youngest person here. I don't know what I'm talking about. I think you're older than me. I'm twenty. Oh, you're twenty. Oh, I'm older wow. than you. Yeah, yeah. You're a baby. He's a baby. Gee, thanks. Do you see I've his been face? called a fetus before. That was very. Yeah. Anyway, that was interesting. I won't get into that. All right, I think we have to end it now. <laughs> okay. we, we've we've been trying. We've been waffling off a little bit. Um. And yeah, hopefully, listen to our show next week. We'll be back. Actually, no. This is our last show on Sin. So if you are listening and you're thinking where can you listen to us you can find us on the internet we're going to be continuing on the internet you know this this big thing it's this land www yeah the world wide web do the people still s- do, do people say world wide web still i don't know no i i just call it the interwebs at the this interwebs point. yeah <laughs> i like that it's kind of like fancy it sounds like you're smart as well yeah. all right but anyway we're gonna leave interwebs. we're going we're going now. Okay, okay. Right, bye. Bye, listeners. <laughs> and everyone who listened on Sin, this was our last show on Sin FM 90.7. I'm going to miss saying that. Bye. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.